The following presentation is part of the six-week Introduction to Mindfulness Meditation class offered at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. It's good at the beginning of the class and every time at home when you're beginning your practice to do whatever you can uh, to show up to the practice in a way that's there's a sense of uh, not just doing your life or doing your meditation on automatic pilot because it's really the opposite of mindfulness. Mindfulness practice has an authenticity to it. And even when, <laughs> when you say a word like being authentic, you notice how immediately we want to imitate what we think it means to be authentic. Instead of, you know, what it means to be authentic actually, or what it means to be mindful actually, is something that's very natural. So we don't have to pretend, and we don't even have to try to be mindful. It's more about a remembering. So now we'll take a few minutes, I'll review the instructions, and then we'll sit for about 30 minutes. So we're remembering some of the the basic elements of the practice. For the last couple of weeks, I've been emphasizing these two qualities that you can remember. So we're cultivating a balanced mindful presence. And that balanced mindful presence has this quality of relaxation. So the mind is relaxing. It's trusting. It's allowing. Now, we can't just assume the mind is relaxing trusting, and allowing. We have to notice that quality. We have to remember to notice the quality. Is the mind relaxing? Is the mind allowing the experience of the moment to be? Trusting. And then the other quality is the quality of alertness. Is the mind actually interested in the way that it is now? So we look. Is it possible for the heart, for the mind, to be fearlessly interested, fearlessly opening, receiving the experience? Now these two, you might think of them as being opposites, but they're not. The relaxation and the interest work hand in hand. It's it's like there's no way to actually show up, be present, unless to some degree at least the heart, the mind, the body's relaxed, and to some degree the mind and heart is interested. Without that, how do we show up for life? So meditation, mindfulness meditation, is a systematic practice of showing up for life. And we're creating relatively simple conditions to learn how to show up. And it doesn't matter how many times we forget because then in the next moment we can practice showing up. Well, in this moment there is this experience of sitting. So what would it be like to show up for that experience? Well, Mark mentioned or the Buddha talks about these qualities of relaxation or the quality of being alert or interested. And it's interesting just remembering these two qualities activates it. 
It's like any, this is true with any wholesome quality of mind. If you just bring to mind kindness, it's like that quality of mind is more available. You bring to mind patience. Not you should be patient because that's being judgmental. But just the thought, patience. So, you know, we often hear, especially in Buddhist circles, that thinking is bad. Well, thinking is neither bad nor good, or sometimes thinking is bad and sometimes it's good. It depends what you're thinking about. What the thought, what is the effect of the thought on the mind? Or another way of thinking of that, how are we aiming the mind? With the thoughts, how is the mind being aimed? Or directed. So wholesome thinking, wholesome thoughts are thoughts that direct the mind toward this balance. More than anything else, the intention in meditation practice is to bring about a balanced attention and then to sustain that balanced attention. It's really not possible to be a competent happy human being without balanced mind. When our mind is out of balance, then how we see and understand the world then reflects that out of balance. And so our response is out of balance. It doesn't fit. It doesn't work well. The word in um, Buddhism for suffering is dukkha. Maybe some of you have heard that. It's, it's getting to be like the word karma and Nirvana and other Buddhist words that are samsara that are now just part of the, our language. So dukkha sometimes is translated as suffering, sometimes as stress. Maybe the more accurate translation is the unreliability or the unsatisfactoriness of experience. It's not saying that experience is bad, but even really pleasant experience is unsatisfying. Think about how many pleasant experiences we've had in life. Is anybody completely satisfied? So even pleasant experiences, let alone unpleasant experiences, are unsatisfying. They don't completely satisfy the heart. We still want more, need more. So, uh, you know, in our practice, we're creating this balance to be stable with no matter the conditions. So how to be stable even when experience is not what we want or unsatisfying. And actually it's the balance itself that ends up being the refuge as opposed to the pleasant experience that's going to be satisfying. I'm going to say this again because it's really important. And it's really talking about a change of allegiance. And then it really helps us understand what our meditation practice is about. It's about this shift in allegiance. Normally, as a human being, being raised in our culture, all cultures really, we just have this very strong belief that our happiness, our refuge, will be getting certain experiences that will be satisfying to us. And then we'll be content because we got what we wanted, we got away from what we wanted to get away from, and now we feel safe and content and satisfied. Right? Does that sound about right for us? And the way the Buddha 
understood it from his own experiences that seeking a satisfying experience is stressful. Needing to have an experience that's deeply satisfying and that makes us feel safe is inherently stressful and leads to all kinds of complications like justifying greed, justifying anger, violence, who knows what. Because we think we need this experience in order to be safe or satisfied. So then we're willing to manipulate others or, you know, do whatever we do, have to do, to get that thing we think we absolutely need or to get rid of that thing we think we absolutely need to get rid of. So that's just a normal take that we human beings have. And unless we train ourselves, we're just going to fall into that cultural habit. So, in the way the Buddha taught, instead of seeking some experience that will be satisfying in a lasting way, he's saying, you know, if you cultivate a wise and balanced presence, then no matter the experience that you're experiencing, no matter the conditions of your life in that moment, the balanced presence will be satisfying. So an example would be, you know, for some of you, it's not so comfortable to be sitting right now. You're just either tired from the day, or you have a lot of restlessness, or the body's uncomfortable, you're hungry, whatever it might be. And that maybe isn't very satisfying. You don't feel safe, it isn't pleasant. But, might it be possible to relate to the experience of the body now in a, in a really wise and satisfying way, regardless of the experience being pleasant or unpleasant? Same thing with great loss. You lose a dear friend or a family member you care a lot about. That's going to be painful. Loss of somebody we love hurts. That's just, the experience of loss hurts. It's the same thing when we stub our head or stub our toe, hit our head or stub our toe, it hurts. But we can relate to that pain in a beautiful way, in a balanced way, in a wise way, in a compassionate way. And that's beautiful. And interestingly enough, it's satisfying. There's a certain profound contentedness that can arise, not because our life or situation is perfect, but because we're learning how to relate to experience, no matter what it is in that moment, in a beautiful, wise, balanced way. So do you see the difference? The the interesting, I think the Buddha used this simile to kind of make this point. In any case, it's an ancient simile that's used in the Buddhist tradition. You know, if we're bothered by being on this earth with a lot of sharp objects, and when we walk there, we step on these sharp objects, and we try to avoid it, we end up stepping on other sharp objects. There are thorns and sharp stones and this and that, slimy things. And so it occurs to us, okay, I'm just going to get my act together, and I'm going to cover the entire earth with leather so that there aren't any sharp things, any yucky things to step on. And that may seem like a a strategy to be safe and satisfied by covering the earth in leather. Or we can build ourselves a pair of shoes. And then regardless of where we walk, 
the feet will be protected. And it's the same sort of thing. I could be in my life, which is just, you know, the very definition of life is there's one experience followed by another experience. Each experience is being known. Some are pleasant, some are unpleasant, some are neutral. And so I could be living my life as these different pleasant and unpleasant and neutral experiences come my way, and I know them. I could be struggling to only have pleasant experiences that last forever, right? Because it's not enough to have a pleasant experience if it goes away. The only satisfying experience would be a pleasant experience that never changes. So I could be struggling my whole life to have satisfying experiences that never end. Or I could change the way the mind is. So that there's, that the way the mind is, or in Buddhism we'd say the understanding of the mind, is such that the understanding of the mind itself is satisfying and safe and peaceful and stable. Regardless of whether there's gain or loss, praise or blame, pleasantness or unpleasantness, fame and disrepute. These are the eight worldly winds that the Buddha talks about. Like a normal human life swings back and forth between pleasant and unpleasant, gaining something and losing something, receiving praise, receiving blame, being famous, being infamous. That just happens for all of us in different ways, of course. It's not the same for each of us. But there isn't this constant, you know, only good. It's a movement. It's a mix. So either we struggle against the world that will never be that safe, permanently safe, satisfying experience and are endlessly stressed out and exhausted by that effort, or we work on transforming our understanding. And that's really what the practice is about. So you may think, like when you're sitting and you hear instructions to pay attention to the breath, you may think, okay, I'm going to fix my mind by putting my attention on the breath and holding it there. But really the reason, the purpose of the practice is to transform our understanding. So instead of making our experience perfect so it's satisfying and feels safe, what we're doing is we're transforming our understanding. We're learning to more and more radically open to the experience of the body and the mind with an understanding that's unshakable, that doesn't get shook by a memory that comes and goes, or shook by pain in the knee, or a pleasant breeze from the window above me, or irritated by an obnoxious sound, or seduced by a, a beautiful sound. But the heart, the mind, is unmoved. Like the Buddha said in one of his talks, the unshakable release of the heart. This is the goal of the holy life, he said. The unshakable release of the heart. The heart that is not shaken or shook by what comes and goes. Now this doesn't come from disconnecting. It actually comes from engaging or opening with the present moment. Because it's not really an unshakable heart if you have to hide from experience. The steadiness of the heart then is happening because you've repressed everything or you're hiding from everything. The kind of unshakable 
peaceful, contented, wise heart we want is the heart that can sit right in the middle of everything. Like one of my teachers said, in the downtown of suffering, you want to be able to sit or open right up in the middle of what we don't want to open to and there be unshakable, at ease, clear, relaxed, responsive, engaged. So think about that in our sit. So when we're sitting and taking up the different trainings that we've talked about over the last few weeks, have in the back of your mind or right here this sense of transforming your understanding that almost always out of habit our understanding is about fixing things, making the moment better, controlling, getting on top of, behaving well, you know. Behave yourself. If you're good, good things will happen. And then we blame ourselves. Like if things are bad, we blame ourselves, we blame our body, we blame God, we blame genetics. We, bl- we keep turning the world into good and bad. That's the telltale sign that you've fallen into the ordinary view, the ordinary, conventional, what the Buddha called a worldly view. That's the view where the world seems to be good and bad. There's good and there's bad, and I'm trying to get to the good, and I'm trying to get rid of the bad. And what the Buddha says is, when when the world seems to be, in terms of good and bad, dualistic, then there will always be stress. So when we're sitting and we have this experience of the body sitting and we have the experience of the breath coming and going and we have the experience of thoughts (laughs) coming and going and moods and emotions coming and going, all of that is moving, then what we're doing is we're practicing sitting right in the middle of it and we're actually using, depending on the engagement, on the sensitivity to the thinking, to the sensations of the body and the hearing, So we actually need that in our practice because it's being right in the middle of that where we discover the heart or the understanding that's not shook by it, not disturbed by it, doesn't have to shrink away from it, doesn't have to tighten up around it, but can have that integrity of being really clear, relaxed, interested, unmoved. So how to be in the middle of life and unmoved. Now remember, being unmoved does not be, mean being passive. Being unmoved is really pointing to this inner quality of the mind or heart. Not the outer expression like what we say, what we do. It's not about being unmoved on that level. The personality is still going to respond even better actually, more appropriately in the moment. But there's a stillness an unshakable stillness or peace, ease. Even in Buddhism we use this provocative word, emptiness. An absence of drama. That's what emptiness means. An absence of greed, anger, and delusion at the core. So there's an empty core, like an open, lovely space, like the big open space of a meadow. And it's there, right in the middle of our busy lives where we're responding and acting and saying things and not saying things and feeling emotion. So it's not an absence of emotion. It's not an absence of activity. It's an absence of reactivity. This inner, subtle drama that turns the world into good and bad 
and there's a sense of a somebody who wants what's good and is afraid of what's bad and personally feels like it has to struggle against the bad and for the good. It's interesting how much we like movies and books and stories about good and evil. You know, I think about The Lord of the Rings, which is sort of the classic book of good and evil. But you know, it's interesting. I think uh, Tolkien had a little Buddhist wisdom, or just wisdom. You know, because there are some elements, not too many, but there are a few elements in the books, at least, and I think made it into the film a little bit less, where he casts the whole drama of good and evil, if you don't know it, it's just the story of good and evil. <laughs> and uh, But he has, he has little moments where he understands that this big drama, good versus evil, is, exists in this huge, huge space of time, and we don't need to take it too seriously. Even though the characters in moments take it very seriously. There's a particular scene I like, if you let me indulge. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, they, in the movie especially, they just, with the, you know, the technology, Frodo and Sam are just at the end of their journey and they got to do this thing to save the world. And, and it's just so desolate and so difficult and they're so exhausted. And it seems, the odds seem so, uh, you know, just no way they're going to succeed. And Sam, this sort of, you know, the, the classic, not, not well-educated person who ends up having a big heart and a lot of wisdom, says to Frodo, something about not getting lost in the drama, like the good-evil drama, and to have a sense of space that transcends the particular drama we're in. So as human beings, we're always going to be in dramas. In our sit-in-a-moment, when we're sitting, you're going to have dozens, maybe even hundreds of little dramas. A little drama with your knee pain, a little drama with uh, some idea of your to-do list, a little drama about whether you're, you should have come tonight, a little drama about whether the person next to you is sick because they keep moving, or whether the person next to you is really a Buddha and you're not nowhere close to how well that person is practicing. We're going to have all these little dramas but when our practice in moments ripens, comes into balance, there's going to be a sense of space that doesn't have a problem with all these little dramas, doesn't have a problem with having an aging body, doesn't have a problem with being a human being, being a parent of a teenager, doesn't have a problem with... But it doesn't mean there isn't that particular problem. It's just not having a problem with that, all those particular problems having space, the space of wisdom that holds it all. So the heart in that moment isn't investing in good and bad, it's holding it. It's not denying it, saying it ain't true, that there isn't a right or a wrong, there isn't a to-do list I actually have to do, a body I actually have to take care of. It's just not letting it be a personal drama right now in this moment. It's just what it is. The body is just what it is, the thought about a to-do list is just that. It's a thought about a to-do list. The idea of Wednesday is just an idea that tomorrow is a day. These are just what they are. They're not more and they're not less. So that's what we call the perspective of wisdom 
or their perspective that leads to non-reactivity or peace. And this is really the direction of the, the practice is going. Sometimes we call this non-attachment. And if, if you want an easy answer when people who don't really want to know what you're up to in your meditation practice, but you need to give them some answer, you can say, well, I'm training my mind in the direction of non-attachment. But I'm not training my mind in the direction of non-love or non-engagement or passivity. I'm just training my mind in the direction of not grasping, not attaching, not getting so identified, taking so seriously the very real duties and responsibilities of this life. I'm not going to negate or neglect my duties and responsibilities, but I'm not going to add the tension of seriousness, of identity, of attachment, of grasping, because it doesn't help. It's just stress. That's what I do. And if that's too much to say, I'm practicing non-attachment. <laughs> because mostly we get, oh yeah, that would be, I mean, we all know how much we suffer around our attachments. You shouldn't have said that. You should have, you know, we're attached to our opinions. The government shouldn't have closed down. What are they thinking? We can get so steamed, you know, and then, and all that seems to make sense in those moments is to listen to other people who are so steamed. And on and on like that. So, shall we practice some non-attachment? <laughs> so feel free to stand and stretch out your legs so you'll be comfortable. And while we're standing, I'll say a few things about walking meditation. I <clears throat> set up the handout, so if you haven't seen it yet, you can take a look at it. It's a nice, short article about walking meditation that Gil Fronstow wrote. He's a wonderful teacher from the West Coast. He has a lot of really good uh, materials about practice um, on his website. So you can just, I think the link is there in the handout. So in a perfect world, you'd have a, you know, a 20 to 40 foot space in your backyard or a hallway in your house that's completely uncluttered and beautiful, and never bothered by pets or housemates or children. And you'd have your half an hour, let's say, or your 15 minutes or whatever time you have for your walking meditation practice. You'd stand at one end and you would know standing is like this. And you just use that very obvious experience. And we can all do this, for most of us at least, because we're standing now. And you just know, standing's like this. For those of you who are sitting, sitting's like this. Belly saw. You just feel the feet making contact with the floor. It's such an obvious experience. So it's as an anchor for your attention, it's really easy to connect with that pressure or that weight. And then when you feel ready, you just begin to walk. And generally, especially if you have a longer space, start at a normal pace. Don't feel like you have to walk slowly. But as you feel uh, more relaxed, you might, you might naturally just start slowing down. But walk at a pace that makes it easy to be mindful. And you can just notice the physicality. So I won't walk too fast because I don't have that much space. So stepping, stepping, stepping. Now you don't have to look at your feet. Some people feel like they've got to watch their feet when they're walking. Otherwise they can't know it. But that's a bad habit. It's like unless we see something, it doesn't exist. But that's not true. And actually it's better training not to look because then you'll notice the physicality, the actual sensations 
not your thought about having legs and I'm here walking in this hallway. That's not the experience of walking. That's the experience of thinking about walking. So when you're not looking, it will be even easier to tune into the physicality, the lifting, the touching, the pressing. I'll slow it down. Because you can really, when you're walking slowly, there's many pieces you can notice, each part connecting, noticing the lifting of the foot, lifting up, the moving or swinging forward, the dropping, the touching, the pressing, the pressing. But normally when you're walking at a, a regular pace, you're just going to be able to notice something as simple as touching, 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 standing, turning, turning, turning the body, and standing, standing, stepping, stepping, stepping. It is so nice when life is this simple. We often lament how much we'd like a simple life. It's interesting we don't take advantage of these simple things like just walking. And when you do it formally in your hallway or in your space in your backyard, use the instructions, play with it at least two times this next week. And then all the little places, like when you walk from your office to the bathroom, you just naturally think, it will arise in your mind, I can just be mindful for this 60 feet or 200 yards, you know, whatever it might be from the parking lot to the office or whatever, wherever you walk to the, you know, from the place you got your milk at the grocery store to the checkout line. And you can just be in the physicality of walking. And remember, what are you doing? You're transforming your understanding. Normally, we're seeking pleasant experience and seeking to get rid of unpleasant. Now, you're seeking to be free in the experience that's arising. You're not trying to change the experience of walking. You're trying to realize a freedom, a mind or a heart that is completely content in the experience of walking. Just like we do when we're sitting in the experience of breathing. So you're using the experience of walking to realize a heart that's free, has no problems, no dramas with the way it is walking from the car to the office, breathing in, breathing out. Does that make sense? It's a practice of freedom. It's like anything. If you want to get good at freedom, you have to practice freedom. So the techniques we're learning are a training ground to realize freedom. We can't try to be free because that's stressful. But in the context of walking, in the context of breathing, in the context of sitting, we can realize our inherent freedom that's there as soon as the mind stops struggling with the moment. So we have to be ready, because the mind doesn't struggle continuously because it's stressful. So it stops, and we can notice in that moment the heart's at ease. Oh, this is what it means to be peaceful and breathe, or this is what it means to be peaceful and walking. This is what it means to be peaceful and sitting. Because in this moment, the heart isn't struggling, the mind isn't struggling. This is a great thing. As much as we struggle and react and have drama, there are little gaps. And we need to realize those gaps when we're not struggling. And then it's, it's basically the mind is realizing another way of being. And then that's how it grows. By realizing in moments 
the mind that's in the moment, engaged, showing up, alert, relaxed, but not struggling, not constructing drama, personal drama, personal patterns of reactivity. So in that moment, we say the mind is free of drama, free of, in Buddhism, we say free of greed, anger, and delusion. This, so what, this practice in Buddhism isn't about transcendence to some other place. The heaven, you know, like if there's heaven in Buddhism, it's balance. It's the balance of the mind. So the mind is radically present, alert. It's not repressed or hiding. It's right there, but it's in balance. It's not pushing or pulling. It's not fighting. It's just receiving and responding, but that's an, that's an activity of nature, not an activity of somebody who's taking it seriously and struggling with it. So practice walking at least two times this week, and then next week in our small group, I mean in the discussion after the sit, we'll talk about walking meditation practice. So let's sit, we'll sit for about 30 minutes, we'll check in, see what you've been learning during the week, before we end at 9. So do what you can to sit in a stable way. Don't be shy about using the chairs if that's good for your body. There's some extra chairs over to my left. You might find it useful to take a couple of Long and easy breaths in and out, slowly filling and then slowly emptying the lungs a couple times. Maybe one more time in a relaxed way, breathing in deeply, and whenever you're ready, exhaling. Eventually letting the breath continue on its own, so you're no longer controlling the breath. Trust the body to breathe, and we'll receive the sound of the bell.
noticing the simple qualities of warmth and tenderness as the mind is willing to open to the experience of sitting this great ocean of sensation that is the body. We're learning to trust, learning to receive the different sensations that come and go. Breathing in, remember to feel the body as it is. Breathing out, remember to allow the body sensations to be. So this is a simple technique with each in-breath. You're remembering that it is possible for the mind to be interested and alert. You could even repeat the word knowing as you breathe in, just as a reminder to know clearly the way it is. And then with each exhalation, you can remind the mind that it's okay to allow the body to be, to relax and trust. So if you want to use a meditation word, you could use the word knowing with the inhalation and releasing with the exhalation. And just use it as often, those words, as often as is useful, or come up with your own meditation words as needed.
be willing to begin again and again, knowing, releasing. And even if the mind gets distracted, that's not a problem. There can be a knowing that the mind is distracted, and then a releasing of any judgment, any reactivity, and any attachment to the distraction. Knowing and releasing. And you can notice how the distraction goes away on its own when the mind is no longer attached, trying to hold on or trying to get rid of it. Remember, it's not necessary to control the breath, but instead just allow the breath to come and go.
be willing to begin again and again. Practicing being at ease with the conditions of the mind and body. When we forget how to be at ease, just remember to breathe in knowing it's like this. And to breathe out, allowing, releasing into the way that it is, trusting it, relaxing with it. Knowing, releasing. In some moments, you're just knowing the breath coming in, going out. Other moments, knowing the distractions that are live and real in the moment. Pain in the body, whatever it might be. Knowing, releasing.
remember that physical pain or physical discomfort may seem like a problem. Don't initially assume you have to move. Just see if it's possible to know the experience as you breathe in, as it actually is, to be honest. Oh, it's like this. Then, with each exhalation, see if it's possible to be close, to release any resistance, to trust it, to relax with it. Maybe it's not dangerous to feel these sensations as they are. But when you find that you're just struggling or tensing over and over again, no matter your efforts to be present, then in a mindful way, just make an adjustment to release the tension as quietly as you can, noticing how it is as you do that.
will be sitting for another minute or so. Remember, this is the practice of being free with the way that it is, the way this mind and body are not. Sitting right in the middle of this experience, alert, relaxed, unconditional acceptance. mentioned in the previous weeks that if you like this gesture, you can do it at the end of a sit. Just bring your hands together, bring your forehead. It seems to be a, um, just a gesture that human beings naturally like using to create a sense of gratitude, to being grateful for this time, this practice. So just use that if it helps. You can do it at the end of a sit or whenever you want, basically. So feel free to stretch out your legs. And we'll take a little time. One of the things that's really helpful is to hear what people have been learning in their practice, what's been challenging for you, what you feel like you've been able to learn, about your mind, questions that you have about the instructions that I've given over the weeks. And if you do decide to speak up, please say your name. So what comes to mind? What have you been learning? Yes. My name is Don. It seems that when when I'm able to allow the flow of language to stop that I'm able to focus just on imagery, abstract imagery, without words. And it seems to, my mind feels like it's more balanced at that point, without the language, without the words. Is that like the case that it's a good sign? Yeah, generally, it's hard for there to be words without uh, the mind taking them personally. Like, one of the things, if you're trying to rest and somebody's talking in a language you understand, it's really hard for the mind not to be listening. And that's true whether the words are coming from outside or inside the mind, right? Yeah, so that's why often when we're... (laughs) Using a particular training, we might take an object of experience like the breath or sensation or hearing natural sounds, not the sound of language, and we turn the attention there because that uh, that object isn't agitating the mind in the way that language agitates the mind. 
It's like, if I said the word pink elephant, it's like, you can't help yourself. You imagine a pink elephant. And then you can't help but having an opinion. Well, that's a stupid thing to say. Or, why did he say pink elephant? There's probably something mystical about pink elephants. i got to get myself a pink elephant. Or maybe he's a Republican. <laughs> or something. So, it's just the way it is with language. And so, generally, it's uh, in our practice, we're, we're turning the attention away from what's conceptual. Because concepts, ideas, language... Uh, triggers the mind to grasp, to get serious, to take things personally, to have an opinion for or against, you know, that dualistic world I was talking about. Now, when you're using, using visual experience, you want, it just so happens that our visual experience is very much related to concepts, to ideas and words. So you wanna, you said abstract visual experience. One of the things just to check in about when you're doing that, when you're being mindful of the flow of visual experience, visual, excuse me, visual form, is you just might recall or notice that you're seeing, because that's what's happening. It's just seeing being known, just sights being known. It's just seeing. Just to make sure that the mind isn't having, like, it may be like you like it and it is personal, but because it's pleasant, it's easy for the mind to get quiet. That there may be a subtle attachment. So you want to remember, oh, it's just seeing. Keep it really simple, just seeing. Thanks for sharing that. Other thoughts about your practice? What have you been learning? Stumbling blocks this last week as you've been sitting? Yeah. Uh, Johnny, um, as we talked in the last class, you suggested that on blocks... Um, alternating between sounds, listening, <laughs> sensations, and saying, I think it was like every 30 seconds or something. Yeah, yeah, that's um, another technique. Very oh, good. And that's especially a useful technique if you don't have your own walking lane where you're going back and forth, uh, where I would no, uh, generally instruct you to, like the instructions that I sent out with the handouts, just to be aware of the physicality of walking. But if you're walking around a lake or walking for several miles, you can do what I mentioned to Johnny last week at the, after the end of the course we were talking. And this is a, just another walking meditation technique where you rotate between seeing, hearing, and feeling the body moving. So for 30 seconds or so, you don't have to be exact, you're just aware of seeing. You're not looking around. You're just kind of gazing in front of you. But you're mindfully aware that seeing is being known. Seeing, and you can even use that word for about 30 seconds. Seeing, just seeing, seeing for 30 seconds. And then switch to hearing. And you just open to the experience of hearing. You're just walking around like Harriet or whatever. And bet the mind is mindful of hearing. Hearing, hearing's like this. It's just hearing being known. And then switch to the physicality of walking. So just the body moving through space as one thing. So you're not focusing like I showed you in the walking meditation, touching, 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 but just the whole physicality of the experience. And so you might name that as moving, moving is being known, moving like this, something like that. And then go back to seeing, 
then the hearing, that the moving, about 30 seconds for each of those sense gates, just rotating through those three sense gates. So that's another way you can practice mindful walking. And that's a little bit more conducive, like I said, when you're walking a longer distance at a more normal pace, and you're not, you don't have your own walking lane going back and forth. The thing about the walking lane is, when you get to the end, no matter how spaced out you become, how involved in thinking, generally you'll get, when you get to the end of your walking lane, oh yeah, I'm practicing walking meditation. Not thinking meditation. So you stop, you realize standing, you realize turning, you realize standing, you realize walking again. So it will break the cycle. But when you're just walking around the lake, it's not so easy to, you get lost and you don't realize it until you get all the way around the lake that you've been lost in thought. So rotating through these sense gates can be just a trick to keep you in the moment. Oh yeah, come back, see, or whatever you remember leaving off on. Other comments from your practice or questions? Yes. Um, I'm Lucas. Um, sometimes I like I get into a state where I feel very um, like I can almost wander around and look at my body and feel everything that's going on in it, and that's pretty cool. Um, but then, like, that's called alertness, right? So when I'm talking about that one quality, and I said the first week, you can develop that to the nth degree, where the mind is profoundly alert. It can know pretty much anything. Mm-hmm. And then this evening, I got to the point where I just couldn't feel my body. I mean, like, I, I was in such a relaxed place, and I was like, well, should I? I mean, I could sort of feel it, but again, it just kind of goes away after a little bit, and I wasn't certain, like, is that moving away from the entire mindfulness? I was being very conscious of my breathing and everything, but everything else just sort of... Like, well, how do you know what you were feeling wasn't what was there? Like, why did your mind draw that conclusion that you weren't feeling the body? Because what you were feeling was the body, but just not the body you're used to feeling. And that's the thing. Donuts, we have to have a really open mind, and in this practice, you have to learn to trust your direct experience. Not your memory, not your idea of what the body is, but your actual experience. This is what I'm knowing. This is what the mind knows. The body's like this. It's like light. It's empty. It's buoyant. It's, you know, it's like a subtle field of vibration and nothing more. Well, maybe that's actually what the body's like now. We, we don't want to impose a strong idea that the body's weightful, it's heavy, it's solid. That's, those are ideas. And sometimes the body appears to be that way, and other times the body appears to be weightless. <clears throat> There's a saying in Buddhism, you know, that the more we practice, the more everything has the quality of the mind itself, which is empty and luminous and free. So whatever we look at has that sort of quality to it. So... Just be interested, keep, and don't assume you're making a mistake. You can check, like if something happens like that, and you, and there's a sense that something's off, then just check, well, is the mind alert? Is the mind relaxed? The mind is alert, and the mind is relaxed. So, this is how it is now. It is like this. Can this be okay? Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Lucas. Sounds good. 
Other thoughts? Yeah. Well, maybe a little louder. Um, you mentioned about um, the core and this, the space and the emptiness and, and the void, but it yet being peaceful, you know. So I had this, this vision of that space, but then sometimes I, I like to attach, not attachment, I like to have a name for that. Mm-hmm. What would they call that? That space? Yeah. The absence of greed, anger, and delusion. You know, the Buddha really liked, if you didn't hear Noel, she was asking about, I used earlier in the opening talk about the sense of space or emptiness. And she was saying she wanted some, wants something to call it. And it is, it's true. Our mind does want to give it a positive name instead of saying non-greed, non-delusion, a mind without greed, delusion, and aversion. Uh, we want to call it something, you know, Buddha nature. We want to call it divine. We want to call it peace. And, and, and the, the native language, they would refer, there's a name that refers to that, because that's something I tried to uh, bring myself to awareness. Right. And I just say that name. Yeah, well, you could use something like ease or peace or release, like I suggested as a meditation word to use as you're breathing out. The word release, the mind is released. It's not holding, it's not fixed, it's not pushing, it's not pulling, it's not struggling, it's released. So, and I like, instead of making, I like to make it a verb, it's releasing. Knowing, releasing. Because there is a sort of process, activity, nature to our experience. So you can language it that way too. Releasing. It is the mind that is releasing. It's the heart that's releasing. It's the heart that's knowing and the heart that's releasing what's known or not holding on to what's known. It's letting it go. It's knowing and letting go. So the Buddha did like to put things in the positive because we tend to get attached to it. You know, and then we build altars to it and then we fight over it. You know, that's what we tend to do with our ideas, our positive ideas. Because the way you describe it is different than I describe it. So you must be wrong. Because I'm so sure that my way of describing... But it isn't so much what's there. It's much more about what's not there. And this is actually an important discovery. We're not trying to create or attain something in our meditation. We're attempting to realize something, realize the heart that's free of greed, anger, and delusion. So we're observing the heart or the mind in a continuous way, and mostly we're noticing the greed, we're noticing the aversion, we're noticing the struggling, you know, all the ways that the mind gets attached, that there are, you know, especially as we practice more and more, there will be moments when the mind isn't struggling, isn't attached, isn't greedy, isn't aversive, and we'll notice a sense of open space. And it has no weight or form or problem. We call that, whatever you want to call it, peace, you know. But don't try to grasp that peace, because then there's a problem. I don't want to lose this peace. I don't want to lose this peaceful feeling. I want to hold on to it and put it in the bank, so I always have it, and no one can ever take it away from me. And all of a sudden, we're in a drama, and then we've lost the peace because we wanted to hold on to it. 
kind of maybe something that connects me to not is it not good or bad or healthy to not have something to go to because it feels like there's an attachment to that. You know, like it's okay to look forward to something. You know, you come here to the meditation center. You know, so there's something that draws you that attaches you to this. Tuesday night. I mean, it's, I'm kind of trying to play out of my in my anticipating too much energy into. But right now, when we have any kind of attachment, that's the moment to be mindful. So we're just going to be mindful of like really liking the practice or really liking the course or really liking anything in our life. And we'll notice, if we're just honest and mindful, we'll notice it's stressful. Liking something is stressful. Wanting something is stressful. It's not about being judgmental. We're just noticing what it is to like. But what happens is with that liking, there's some excitement and the excitement's on the surface and we tend to be superficial. We don't look beyond the surface to notice it's tight. Like I remember as a kid, the night before we went on vacation, maybe you remember some of these kind of moments, and just being so excited about going on vacation. Now, if you asked me as a child, I'd say, I'm really happy because we're going to go on vacation tomorrow. But if I was really honest, like from my perspective now, from my understanding now, I would realize that was really painful. Those nights, I couldn't sleep. I was so excited. So, But it, it was stressful to want to go, to want to leave, to want to be there. That's not pleasant. But I would think it's pleasant. So a lot of times we think we're happy, but we're not. We're stressed. But it's just because we're not paying attention. So we really want to look at attachment right where it is. Whatever it is, even attachment to meditation practice. Attachment equals suffering. There is nothing you can be attached to without the tension of the attachment. So it doesn't mean that we don't have preferences for like a peaceful mind or an aspiration to have a peaceful mind. It's totally appropriate to have an aspiration for a peaceful mind. But to do this because you want a peaceful mind doesn't make sense. To get tight about it. You know, to make a drama about it. Why didn't I start meditating when I was in my 20s or my teens or when I was two? You know, if only I had started 14 lives ago. Then I'd be so good at this practice stuff. So we can create a drama. Basically, we're whipping up suffering for ourselves right now. Instead of practicing being at ease, practicing releasing now, we're worried or upset that we didn't practice it, that we should be practicing it. We create drama for ourselves. So when in doubt, get interested in non-attachment now, releasing now. But we can only release by showing up. We have to be alert in order to let go. You can't let go theoretically. We can only let go when we're paying attention to what the mind or heart is doing. And then we can relax. We have to feel the tension in order to relax. We have to be sensitive to let go. Otherwise, it's just like we're imagining we'd like to let go. But we have to see the heart holding before it can let go. We have to feel the tension in the mind and body in order to know what letting go is in this moment. What are the thoughts that come to mind about the practice? Yeah, nice and loud. 
I'm Carrie. I'm wondering how you love without attachment. Well, that's the great question. And actually just holding that question will be really good. Like as you go through your day, what is love without the suffering, without the attachment? And attachment masquerades as love. A lot of times when we say we love something or someone, it's actually attachment, not love. Love is like, uh, and this is something you you discover just by paying attention. So I'm not talking theory. I'm talking about seeing directly in our experience. Love directly as an experience is a kind of generosity. It's an upwelling of goodness, a good feeling in the heart that wells up and naturally goes out and up and out. And the more you're doing it, it's not like it ever runs out. The more you love, the more kindness or compassion moves, the more there is. Just the opposite of what we might think. Like, oh, I better stop because I'm almost out of love. I can't give anymore. I better go back to the love gas station, you know, and fill it back up so I can give more love. It's not that way at all. So the actual experience is a generosity of heart. That's a nice definition of love. It's the heart that is happy to give away our good wishes, our wishes for someone or our, or our own well-being. It doesn't really matter. This is the other thing about love. It doesn't discriminate. So if your love is just about you loving one other person, that's probably not love in the deepest sense of the word. Now you might notice that when you see somebody you love in your life, somebody close, and you feel that natural generosity, then you can look at that natural generosity and you can see that this person may have triggered it, but that generosity of heart actually isn't about this person or the situation that I'm in. And you'll notice it can go everywhere and anywhere. So you have it in this moment with this person, but when you look, you realize... I also care about the grass. I care about this body. I care about this moment. There isn't anything that the heart doesn't care about. Doesn't sort of, isn't willing, the heart is willing to give itself completely to the moment. That's the giving away, the showing up. So, there is love without attachment. And we have to understand it. We have to really Look at it. So when you feel a lot of love in your life, you want to be mindful of it. You want to open. What is this? Oh, this is love. Well, what is this love? And you're sort of teasing, oh, no, that's not love. That's attachment. That's tightness. Like, I love this person, but I want them to love me. I want them to treat me this way. That's not love. That's fear. I'm afraid they're not going to treat me the way I want to be treated. Or that's some kind of a business relationship. I'll be nice to you if you're nice to me. I'll be patient with you if you put up with me. So then we're, that's not love, that's a negotiation. That's a play of power, like, I can give you this, but I'm not going to give you this unless you're going to give me that. Ready? <laughs> you know, well, I'm not going to let go until you, you know, so that's that business-like relationship. And it's tight. And then we say, well, that's not love, that's something else. That's two beasts negotiating safety with each other. And real love is not afraid to give something away because there is joy and goodness in giving away regardless of what comes back. What we get from love is the giving away. That's what feels good about it. It's just giving away. And generally, we'll notice this best in simple moments. 
not with our partners, surprisingly, often. It doesn't mean we don't love them. It just means that those relationships are often complicated with survival things. You know, as a social being, a lot of our sense of survival is wrapped up in belonging and being accepted. And that's a different level. It's not real spiritual love. It's something else. I, that doesn't mean it. at times there isn't a lot of spiritual love in our partnerships. But you'll notice it more easily in simple situations. You're walking down the street and you see something simple. You know, you see a squirrel chewing on a nut. And there's just a, a sense of natural generosity of the heart. The heart just goes out, in a sense, and cares about that squirrel. Not in any big or profound way, in a very simple, natural way. Just that, as if the heart were to say, may you be happy. And that that wish is just a free... You don't expect anything back from the squirrel. <laughs> it's a free gift. Or you see somebody kind of in road rage driving by you, you know, upset about something, and your heart just goes, it isn't easy being a human being. May your life go better than it's going right now. May your day get better. And that's a free gift. That generosity of the heart is just offered freely. You just care. You know it isn't easy being a human being, and that's what it is probably for you right now. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. And we have time maybe for one more question or comment. Anything come to mind that you'd like to bring up for the group? Yeah, say your name. Uh, my name is Bob. Uh, nothing is on the It's not a lofty question, but it's just here. But uh, it's one that uh, is intriguing me, and that is the bell that you could ring. The harmonics are just incredibly beautiful. Yeah, I nice know that it's the beginning and the end of the meditation session. But is there any significance? Is there? Yeah, yeah, there is. And so, if you didn't hear Bob, he was asking about the bell, and we have lots of nice bells. Uh, someday I'll bring out the bigger bell we have. Um, and it's a, actually a very important principle because it's a relatively, for most people, pleasant sound. It seems that way it, that it's that way for Bob. And. <clears throat> What does the attention like to do when something's pleasant? Well, notice how it naturally gathers. The attention gathers when it's pleasant. If I brought out your favorite food right now and you were hungry and I asked you to, you know, you might be tempted to be greedy, but if you could just relax and take your time, it'd be very pleasant. And the, you could get really concentrated in that. Or, Today, Copper Guard is uh, in the process of buying a retreat property out in the country, a beautiful place, about 90 minutes away. We were out there having it inspected today. And it was such a beautiful day out in the country. Leaves are starting to turn. It's so pleasant. And the mind gets so concentrated, so collected, unified. It doesn't want to worry. It doesn't want to think about the to-do list as much. Still will, but not as much. Because it's content with the sound of the bell for 30 seconds or 20 seconds, as long as it lasts. So it's a nice way to begin a sit to tune into something pleasant. One of the, if you have a bell, you can ring it at home. Or you can even bring a really pleasant thought to mind. Like, uh, I care about this life. That's a beautiful thought. It isn't easy being a human being. 
and I care about this life, this mind and body. I care about this mind and body. May this heart be at ease. And not only do I care about this heart and mind, I realize it isn't easy for other people being a human being. I care about my cat, I care about my partner, I care about my relatives, I care about my friends. I care about all beings. You know, that takes 30 seconds. And it's like a sound of a bell. It's like, it's a very engaging thought. Like the sound of the bell is a very engaging sound. Or you could take a nice warm bath before you sit. And you could really use the pleasantness of the sensations, if you like baths, to really concentrate your mind. Or do whatever is pleasant. Take a nice walk in a pretty place. Gather your attention that way. This is like preparing for the meditation. So it's just a... That's why, like, uh, for some people especially, it will be important to find a place at home that's really pleasant. Create a little corner, even if you have just a tiny apartment. Create a little corner, if you can, that's just for this activity. And if you have some money, get yourself, like, a cushion or a chair that really supports your body and it's beautiful. If you like an altar or look out a window with some trees or something that's pleasant for the mind. So when you go to that place and you settle in and when your eyes are still open, let's say, it's like everything is very soothing. Like, oh yeah, I like it here. It's nice. The mind is immediately relatively content. That's why they built those beautiful cathedrals with the stained glass you know, or the other sort of spiritual temples in the different cultures through human history. It's because you go to those places and the mind feels peaceful. This is a greasy, greasy 50s diner when we bought it in 2006. I mean, I can't tell you how greasy it was. (laughs) And the community, you know, a lot of money and a lot of community effort to completely gut this building. Everything was taken out. All the insulation, the floors, the subfloors, Everything and rebuilt. New stucco, new everything, new roof, new ventilation, new electrical, new plumbing. And now it's relatively pleasant. You know, it's something we could afford. And it's like, and we keep it simple. So when you come here, you know, it's not perfect, but it, it's like, oh yeah, I feel safe here. It's a peaceful place. So you can do that. That's like the sound of the bell too. Even the clothes you wear. You know, if you have a nice sweatshirt that you don't use for much else, you just take your street clothes off, which you worked in, and you put your comfortable, pleasant clothes on. You know, you're in your little corner. It's pleasant. Already the mind is starting to gather itself because it likes this experience. The easiest object for objects for concentration are pleasant objects. So that's just a little trick, you know, that we can use to gather the attention. When you're really upset, find something that's wholesome and pleasant to turn your attention to. We naturally do this, don't we, when we're upset. We can, uh, well, we do both. We do the opposite, too. We keep looking at what upsets us. That's called being neurotic. <laughs> we keep going back. It's like... Uh, I have a friend who told me this. It's kind of disgusting, but I'll leave it here. (laughs) It's like a dog that vomits and wants to go sniff the vomit. It's the same way. When we have some 
thing that's really bothering us, we keep wanting to go back. And say we want to pick at the scab. We know better, but in another way we don't. We just keep doing it. So we should know the opposite. Honey, we need to 